touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey there and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm Jonathan Strickland. And I'm Lauren Volkebaum. And we're picking up where we left off last uh, episode, which was uh, about pneumatic tubes. Yes, because who knew? They were a really big thing for a really long time. Yeah, and pretty cool, you know. I know a lot of people say they both suck and blow, but personally, I think they're pretty awesome. They do, but in a cool way. Yeah, like like that's what they literally do. Yeah, a fan. Yeah, because it's it's pneumatic tubes are a air pressurization system that moves a thing from one point to another. Yeah, so. yeah. So anyway, <laughs> last time we just left off with a, a, a Mr. Beach, the inventor and engineer who sunk a lot of his personal fortune into the attempt to create a pneumatic subway system in New York, which ultimately did not happen. Failed completely. But we're still in the 1800s. Uh, yeah, and lots more stuff was going on. In 1875, one D. Brown would patent the cash carrier, which was uh, in, in the United States, which was an in-building system for sending money throughout department stores. Mm-hmm. Um, these suckers operated for decades. Um, one Philadelphia retailer, Wanamakers, installed a really huge system in 1880. That was just a year after they got electric lighting. I've actually seen these in department stores. Have you ever seen one of these? Lauren? I don't think I have. No. So there were some old department stores in um, in Georgia where they still use these. And I'll talk more about, you know, the purpose of these in department stores, because I'm sure there's still quite a few that still have them. Mm-hmm. Um, but, just behind the scenes. Yeah. Or, or it's one of those things that maybe it's just one of those that's only in older buildings. And, sure. You know, whether or not they're still in use is a question that, mm-hmm. you know, that's a different question. But uh, I've actually seen them operated, and I remember wondering how they worked, and I'm pretty sure my dad made up a completely <laughs> fictional, like, I'm sure there were, like, hobbits yeah, involved. Yeah, don't ask science fiction writers no. to explain science concepts I love to my you. dad, but if he doesn't know the answer, he will be more than happy to make it up. <laughs> and here's the thing, he probably knew the answer, too, so, <laughs> at any rate. Uh, yes, and, um... In, uh, by, by, by 1886, the postal tube system in London stretched for 34 miles, that's about 54 kilometers, underneath the city, and it was transmitting 32,000 messages per day at speeds up to 51 miles per hour, that's about 82 kilometers per hour. That's pretty fast. Uh, yeah. Uh, the, the, the mail was carried by what they referred to at the time as street tubes, which were these like 2.5 inch diameter tubes that were made of lead and encased in iron ducts a couple feet beneath the street. Um, today, some of these, like I said at the top of our previous episode, are still intact and are used to house telecom cables. So really is a series of tubes, it like really we said is. before. It really is. Uh, then in 1892, the U.S. Congress would authorize an investigation into this crazy pneumatic mail system thing. Um, this was headed up by Postmaster General John Wanamaker, who is totally the same dude who owns those lines of department stores. Wow. Uh, and yeah, he, he would, he would take charge of the project. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty cool. He's, he's a pretty rad dude, by the way. Uh, if, if, uh, I'm not sure if history, Mist in History has ever talked about him, but he basically created the idea of the department store and is, you know, went on to be Postmaster General, did a bunch of stuff. So due to his influence, in 1897, New York City would open their own pneumatic mail system uh, that would send letters and parcels on a loop under Manhattan at a, about about 30 miles 
per hour, 48 kilometers per hour. Not not too shabby. Respectable speed. Mm -hmm. Uh, All of this was operated by the Tubular Dispatch Company. If only it were the totally tubular. I know, totally tubular. That would probably be the the California version, I imagine. (laughs) Right, right. Maybe maybe in L.A. (laughs) Um, According to the USPS, at peak productivity, six million pieces of mail went through the system daily. Wow. That's a rate of five carriers per minute, each with a maximum load of some 500 letters. Now, keep in mind, this is 1897. And remember that in 1896, that's when Mr. Beach died. That's the guy who was going to build the pneumatic tube system. Uh, So, so around, around that time, lots of cities started to, uh, to, to, to have these crazy pneumatic tube things. Um, Boston, Mm. Chicago, Philadelphia, St. Louis, uh, across the pond, Paris, Berlin, Vienna, uh, Italy even issued specialized stamps for sending mail through tubes. Huh. They're really pretty. I'll have to take a look at those. Yes. Uh, then, in 1911, pneumatic tubes started being used to assist telephone systems. All right. How, how do you mean? <laughs> um, th- this was over in, uh, in Britain, and they, they were called ticket tubes. Mm-hmm. They were used in telephone stations to help o- operators account for calls. So, so when a call was completed, the operator would write up a docket on a, on a stiff piece of paper that recorded the time of the call and then the duration and total charge. The incurred by the customers. Mm-hmm. They'd then fold that stiff piece of paper into a sort of sail <laughs> and just send it straight up to the accounting office. Interesting. Um, and on the same system, error messages could also be sent from the switchboards to the machinery rooms. So this is different from what I thought. When you said that pneumatic tubes were being help- were helping out with telephone systems, I just imagined that you just started screaming into a tube and <laughs> hoping someone somewhere down the line could hear you. They they did actually I believe that they did actually have some tubes like that in some buildings, like <laughs> no. just shout into this tube. Oh, tubes. sure. Like some of the old old ships had those. Uh-huh. too. Right. Right. Yeah. And they the were mostly ones. used yeah. in, a, in in naval yeah. uh, naval capacities. Yeah. Uh, but I, I also just love the idea of the like original 404 message being like sent <laughs> on a stiff piece of paper that was just sailed along. To... I, I imagine <laughs> Google will have to bring that back for an April Fool's Day <laughs> some sometime in the future. Yes. Uh, then in 1913, one Waldemir, hmm, Kempfert? Yeah, I think, uh... Waldemir Kempfert? Yeah, Excellent. I'm so bad at German. You'd think that over the years I would have gotten better. Anyway, uh, he, he was then the managing editor of Scientific American, and he proposed that, like, really soon we should be delivering prepared meals to homes via pneumatic tubes. He was like, this is a direct quote. He was like, if a letter can be shot through... A pneumatic tube from New York to Brooklyn, why not a five-course dinner? Uh, now, obviously, you would want to enclose said meal in some sort of container. <laughs> I'm just having, like, a turkey sh- shoot through the tube at top speed. Uh, I don't know. I kind of like that idea. You just That's imagine, like, 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 I didn't get a full five-course meal, I guess. Maybe I did. All I can tell is it's mush now. <laughs> You know, it'd be kind of like having the Willy Wonka gum, except that all the flavors of all the courses are delivered simultaneously. At <laughs> speeds know. of like 30 miles per hour. Yeah. Uh, I, yeah, I, that never took off. Not surprisingly. Uh-huh. Also, I mean, obviously, in order to have that even work, first of all, the tubes would have to be of a considerable size. Right. <clears throat> and also you would have to make sure you had the appropriate braking system to make certain that the food was not just 
converted into sludge by the time it arrived. Uh, yes, and I and I don't believe that those those air braking systems were really developed until like maybe the 1930s to yeah, 50s somewhere yeah. in there. Um, so so uh, at any rate, in 1914 or by 1914, rather, some third of New York City's mail was being sent by pneumatic tube. Mm-hmm. Um, but oops, hey, that was the year that the World War broke broke out. Mm. Um, And so the U.S. Post Office suspended the pneumatic mail system on the basis of fuel preservation. Um, After the war, the service would be restored, but only in New York City and Boston. The other cities uh, of the U.S., their pneumatic mail systems would remain dormant. Yeah. Now, this does make sense. I mean, obviously, during the World War, uh, you know, they're they're using motors that are running on fuel Mm -hmm. and that fuel was very necessary to the war effort. Yeah, uh, or or some of them were probably still running on steam engines. That's true. That's true. And I mean, even just from a, a labor perspective, oh yeah, you want to make certain that you are dedicating that labor to the efforts that are going to to give you the most uh, positive outcome for the that most war. advantage, right? Um, although in London, those were the pneumatic mail tube systems were considered important enough to keep going. Um, mm-hmm. They they kept their tubes running through the war. Um, Especially, I think, because they were tied to um, uh, telegraphy. Yeah, yeah. So they were really useful for keeping secret messages secret during the war, especially because, you know, other quick communication methods could be tapped. Right. Right. So it's, you know, obviously tapping into a pneumatic tube would be pretty difficult. You just break the tube. Right. Yeah. You'd have to dig work. under a city street and break the tube and, the and then, people notice. Yeah. When you do that. Yeah. It'd be sometimes. hard. It would be hard for you to be able to actually intercept a message at all. I yeah. Mean, just. Yeah. So, yeah, I can understand why it would remain to a a way of sending messages in secret. However, the fact that it's a way to send messages in secret also creates a vulnerability. Uh, yeah, absolutely. So in 1940, the Luftwaffe specifically targeted London's pneumatic tube system. Mm. Uh, they, they successfully bombed out a bunch of it. Yeah. And uh, it would take a- about a year to recover the tube system at all, and it would not be fully restored until after the war was over. Yeah, meanwhile, over in Germany, the Berlin system was also targeted, but had didn't didn't suffer enough damage for a lot of it to be taken offline. I mm-hmm. mean, there were parts that had to be repaired, mm-hmm. but it largely remained operational throughout the war. Yeah. Uh, in 1953, the New York City Post Office would shut down their mail tubes. Um, those same mail tubes that had been proposed by Beach back in the day. Oh, uh, uh, poor Beach. Yeah. He, he, just, he just didn't quite live long enough. <laughs> I mean, granted, again, the electrical system ended up create, being the, the the future of the subway. Oh, uh, sure. But still, that idea of using it for, for freight and for mail was something that he could have actually, if he, if he had lived just another year, he yeah. would have seen it in operation. Oh, yeah. oh. Although by this point, the, the competitor for pneumatic tubes was really motor vehicles. Yeah. Um, the post office began in investing in trucks. Yeah. Which... Uh, kind of made all of these pneumatic tubes a little bit inefficient by comparison. Yeah. Uh, you know, you, you yeah. put you can put heavier things, more things in a truck and you can drive it further distances yeah. to yeah. more than one place. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Um, you could actually make multiple stops. <laughs> <laughs> crazy. Yeah. Uh, but meanwhile, around the same time, the CIA was busy building a really huge pneumatic tube system on their campus in Langley, Virginia, that would wind up transmitting some seven thousand five hundred messages every day yeah even the nsa wasn't able to read all those <laughs> oh 
By 1962, London would also shut down its street tube system. Sad, sad uh, trombone. And in 1976, Berlin would shut theirs down as well. Theirs was pretty big. Uh, it, it If you lined up all the tubes end to end, you would have about 250 miles of them. That's about Ooh. 400 kilometers. And like we said, you know, this one was one that was built in 1865, made it all the way through 1976, and even survived those world wars mostly intact. Mm-hmm. So that's pretty, pretty impressive. Uh, the Paris system would last until 1987. <laughs> the, Paris, the, the Paris system, by the way, was named the Carte Pneumatique, uh, a.k.a. the New. <laughs> oh, you're French. <laughs> I love you so, so dearly. <laughs> by 1989, even the CIA would give up the pneumatic ghost as email began hitting the scene. And now with the NSA, I'm sure they're regretting that decision. Well, yeah, that's the thing. In in the UK, the government may still be using pneumatic tubes. As late as 2003, there's a written record of messages being sent between 10 Downing Street and the, and the Foreign Office by pneumatic tube. Huh. Like like right alongside fancy encrypted computer systems. And I know it's still in use in the Norwegian parliamentary buildings. Oh, yeah. Because I watched a really cool video. <laughs> so there's a video on YouTube and it's it is Norwegian. They're uh-huh. speaking Norwegian. Mm-hmm. I cannot understand Norwegian. Sure. So I do not know what the the description is. I assume it's an explanation of what is about to happen. It's but... probably not saying like this entire video is lies, lies. <laughs> yeah, I'm guessing that's probably not the case. <laughs> but uh, in this in this video, they have a canister that's outfitted on one end with a GoPro and a light. So the light obviously is necessary because they want to capture what it looks like if you were to go through one of these pneumatic tubes. But you need the light because it's going to be dark in there. Right. So they have uh, someone from Parliament, I assume, set the canister into one of the devices. They look like ATMs. Uh, I'll talk more about that in just a second. Uh, but they program where it needs to go. You know, they select the destination. They hit the button and it gets pulled up into the pneumatic system and starts rocketing through all those pipes. So you can actually watch the journey and it takes a, you know, a minute or so for it to get from where they sent it to its destination. Uh, and I think they even set it so that it hit a place and then had to backtrack some because oh, cool. uh-huh. at least that's what it looked like. Yeah. It definitely went through some sort of sorting system at least once, which is kind of cool. Like it's not just a straight shot, which oh, would right. have been, you know, I've been like, oh, it looks, oh like a, it looks like a thing going through a, through a tunnel. Yeah. Woo. Mm. Uh, this was a little more exciting. It also uh-huh. looks pretty rough. Like, <laughs> Like there's a lot of clattering around, uh-huh. uh, you, which makes you think, like, yeah, subway based on this principle might not have been the most gentle of rides. Yeah. Um, but still pretty awesome. And uh, and keep an eye out on Facebook and Twitter. I'll pro- and and Tumblr. I'll I'll send out a link to the video because it is pretty interesting to watch, even if you don't understand Norwegian. Huh. But that also leads us to a discussion about how pneumatic tubes are being used today. You know, in the UK, it may be used for government purposes in Norway as well. Mm-hmm. Maybe in U.S. government, particularly in more secretive circles. Kind of hard to say. Shrug. They don't really advertise that. So being secretive. No, they do not. They, yeah. No, that part they advertise that they are being oh. secretive, just not how they're doing it. <laughs> um, so. 
in order to really talk about this, one of the things I saw and I thought I had to bring it up because, you know, Lauren was on the show to talk about coffee. Ah, uh, yeah. The last time I was here, we were talking about how coffee machines work. Yeah. And uh, as it turns out, there was a pneumatic system that's very closely tied to coffee. And I thought I'd bring that up. There's actually a video about this, too, although it's not quite as harrowing as the <laughs> journey through the pneumatic tube on the GoPro. Uh-huh. So there's a, a company. It's called The Roasting Plant. And it's a coffee company that has stores in New York City. Uh, the, when I, the video dated to a time when they only had a store in Manhattan, but I've seen the plural used to describe their stores now, so I assume okay. there are more than one. Cool. Uh, and they have something called the JavaBot. The JavaBot? Yeah. So here's what the JavaBot does. You get, uh, they, they actually have green coffee beans. Sure. So they, Which is how they arrive. Right. So these are unroasted. From t- trees. Exactly. And so, uh, you know, once you've dried them and everything. And done the whole thing. Yeah. Yep. You can learn more about that in our episode about how coffee machines work. Yeah. Yeah. We go into detail because if, if there's nerds. a subject we're passionate about, <laughs> it's coffee. <laughs> uh, so you take the these beans that have not yet been roasted and you put them into canisters that then are attached by tubes to a roaster. Now, whenever you need to roast a specific type of coffee, it can automatically pull the beans from those canisters through the tubes to the roaster. Once it's done roasting, it sends them through other tubes to other storage canisters so that you have your uh, different, you know, different types of coffee being roasted side by side. And they're all sorted properly. And this way, uh, when you want a particular type of coffee, let's say that you go in and you're like, I want uh, a mix of Sumatran and Ethiopian coffee. You could totally do that. And the system will end up pulling exactly the right number of beans from each. Uh, it, it measures it automatically and zips it off it to the roaster. And, uh-huh. uh, yeah, the whole thing is automatic. So it's pretty, pretty cool uh, to look at. And from what I understand, the way they describe their stores is that it's like walking into a giant coffee machine. Except it's a coffee machine that's also a roaster. So it, it goes beyond <laughs> what a, a normal coffee machine does. So I'm pretty sure that they have to roast the beans ahead of time because there's no way you could roast them fast enough for someone waiting for a cup of coffee <laughs> to get I their coffee. Think. I would yeah. think that roasting them that fast would have to be at temperatures that you don't really want. Yeah, to... you would just burn the beans. Yeah. So my guess is that they they roast them. And then what happens is when you order a cup of coffee, the fir- the, the first ones that had gone through. Uh, that's that process are the ones served up to you. Ah, mm-hmm. And from what I've heard about the uh, the company, they don't keep any roasted beans longer than 48 hours because after that, it, they as well, they should not yeah, because now it's no longer as fresh. Right. Uh, but there are also <laughs> other uses. A lot of hospital systems are using pneumatic tubes. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. It's uh, it's really convenient, as it turns out, yeah. for transporting um, thing, things like like specimens and documents that have a important timestamp yeah. quickly across campuses. And it, this one really, again, after watching that video of the pneumatic tube, like the journey through it, mm-hmm. it surprised me to think of, you know, things like specimens and drugs being delivered this way, because typically you th- consider those to be really, you know, delicate, delicate. Yeah, sure. they're usually in like glass containers and stuff. So I, I looked at a company that does this called Swiss Log. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just one company that does pneumatic systems for hospitals. That's one of the, the things they offer. And the pictures explained a lot. So the canisters uh, were not just big plastic containers that you would put stuff in. They were actually, they had uh, foam in them 
with openings that were just large enough to put in things like a vial of blood, for oh, example. Oh, cool. Okay. So, so yeah, it yeah. holds it steady mm-hmm. and, and it's padded all around. And then you can close it up. And obviously, if you're talking about things like healthcare, talking about patient privacy, you're talking about delivery of drugs, there's a high need for security with these systems. Oh, sure. Yeah. You don't want just uh, anyone walking off the street and opening up a canister. Right. Yeah. Whether that's because that has, you know, drugs that would be illegal for you to obtain without a prescription Mm -hmm. or it contains some sensitive information about a particular person, whatever the reason, you would not want that to happen. So a lot of these systems also have security measures in place so that you cannot retrieve the canister unless you do something else first, like insert a pin. So you would have to know what the pin was to retrieve that particular canister. You would have a little notification. Again, it looks like an ATM. You would walk up to it and it would say, uh, like a secure carrier, um, uh, in, you know, is, is in the system. And to retrieve it, you would have to put in the pin or you might have to scan like a badge. So let's say that Lauren and I work in the same hospital and I want to send Lauren some some information. I could make sure to pick her from you a list it specifically to, to me. Yeah. So that no you one else the can only, access Yeah, it. exactly. You, you would swipe your badge and you'd be the only person capable of retrieving that particular uh, uh, whatever canister. Mm-hmm. And in, in a hospital, obviously, cutting down on the amount of time it takes to deal with this sort of stuff is a huge benefit both to the patient and to the hospital itself. Oh, right. So right. you can understand why this sort of system would be put in place. Mm-hmm. Um, they're, they're usually these days so complex that they have to be controlled by computers yeah. because, uh, you know, human button pushing is not as ideal, especially yeah. once you get into the really complex systems. I was reading about um, Stanford Hospitals, which started installing this huge pneumatic system in 1993. Before then, a, a team of like 20 people had the job of running important samples and results around the expanding Stanford Hospital campus, um, so, some 8 million samples and results per year. And and, and even with that team of 20 people, they were frequently short-staffed, which is, you know, really bad news when the freshness of the samples um, or, or the immediacy of the results are are important mm-hmm. to a patient's health and welfare. According to Stanford, uh, the system as of now-ish uh, hosts 124 stations. Every nursing unit has its own. There are 141 transfer units, 99 interzone connectors, and 29 blowers. Wow. Um to alert employees to the arrival of the containers, the system has more than three dozen different combinations of chimes. <laughs> I can only imagine what it's like learning <laughs> what each chime is signifying. You're like, oh, no, 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 honey, that was beep, beep, boop. You're beep, <laughs> boop, boop. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, yeah, that's not for you. <laughs> if you aren't hearing two boops, don't even bother. Yeah. Yeah. That that was highway to hell. You're looking for stairway to heaven. <laughs> Close, to- totally different, but totally you know, unrelated. One one is much faster to a very undesirable location. <laughs> the other one takes a lot more effort, but you love being there. Just think of it in those sense, yeah, and you'll be fine. Uh, but these these canisters that they use can can go up to 18 miles per hour, which means that even at peak use of the system, which can which can get very busy, it only takes about three minutes for a package to transverse the longest route in the system, which is pretty. Cool. I mean, if you've ever been in one of these huge hospitals, you have to realize that if you were to physically give this to someone and, and have them run it across a campus. Yeah. And, and take elevators or stairs. I mean, these these buildings can be gargantuan. Oh, right? sure. Yeah. Like if you ever go to 
Um, like here's an example in Atlanta, Grady Memorial Hospital is Oof. an enormous beast of a building. Yeah. So clearly, if you have a system of getting this through much faster, again, it could be a huge benefit both to the hospital and to the patient. Mm -hmm. So um, I love this next one you have because it terrifies me. <laughs> uh yeah, pneumatic systems are also being used in industrial plants and factories uh, and have been since about the 1970s. Mm -hmm. Really powerful tube systems began to, to see use as transporters of like heavy machine parts and gravel and stuff like that with, within factories. That's, I mean, I can't even fathom how terrifying. I Yeah, I, I, I didn't read any numbers on, on like exactly the horsepower required for this kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, and so, to think, you know, again, we're talking air pressure as the thing that <laughs> moves this stuff. Mm -hmm. That is... Some, that's a lot of air pressure. Yeah, that's scary that's business. Hefty. Yeah. I can only imagine the size of the canisters, too. I mean, you have to have something that's going to be creating that seal. Like, it's, sure. it's not just loose machine parts rattling through tubes. I would hope not. That would be even more terrifying. Um, yeah. But uh, I mean, and I'm sure it's not like a like a civic worth of gravel that you're sure. sending at the same, sure. you know, all at once. Yeah. And and I, it's probably on wheeled systems similar to what the dispatch system in London was. That wasn't, you know, those weren't just giant canisters either. Those were the wheeled carts that were still pushed pneumatically. But um, we're running along on rails. Uh, so also we talked earlier in, in the first episode, we talked about the department stores using these to um, to transport money. And mm -hmm. so I was going to talk a little bit more about that and the way I saw it. So there were two things I, I saw them used for. I saw them used when someone would write a check at a department store. Instead of storing the check at the cashier's desk, they would go ahead and put it into one of these uh, canisters, put it through the pneumatic tube system to be put to the processing center oh. in inside the same store, mm -hmm. but on a level that customers never went to because mm -hmm. it was the office level. Yeah. And then there were also times whenever you were using really um, large bills that, you know, the cashier would not want to have that at his or her station. Sitting in, in the right. Yeah. You don't want to have a lot of high bills at a point where you're going to be interacting with customers a lot, especially a point where you might have to leave the desk. You know, the responsible thing, the thing that department stores wanted was to get that that big, big money away from the point of contact with customers and into the central processing area, mm -hmm. which you can do by shooting it through a pneumatic tube. Yep. And then occasionally you would have uh, the people over at the, the central unit create change. So if it was something like, you're using a hundred dollar bill to buy a three dollar item, then they might they might not have the change at the cashier, mm -hmm. but they would end up being able to do that over in the central area and then put it back in another canister, send it back down, and there you go. So, like I said, I used to see this in department stores. Um, there are a couple of big ones that we would go to when I was a kid. Hmm. Uh, some some in actual Atlanta and some of them over closer to Gainesville, mm -hmm. which is where I grew up. Uh, Gainesville, Georgia, not Florida. And um, distinction. Yep. There was, you know, <laughs> people are like, oh, Gainesville, Florida? No, smaller than that. <laughs> uh, little city in in, uh, in Georgia. Our, uh, we were the poultry capital of the world and had a statue of a chicken in town square. That is not a joke. I, I wish it were. I didn't think you were joking. You can look up images on Google image search if you want to and make fun of me and my childhood. At any rate, uh, but no, it was really neat to see those because the only other time I ever saw them was whenever my parents were going to a bank to deposit money mm -hmm. or and to withdraw money. went up to money. the drive through. Yep. 
And so, you know, the banks, like if you were right up there, uh, adjacent to the bank wall, uh-huh. then you don't need a pneumatic system. Then. Yeah. There's, there's just a little, uh, shelf that you can kind yeah. of push stuff through. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And then, you know, they'll, they'll use their, their grabbing stick or whatever to get it on their side. And then if you were like one over or two over, obviously then you would need, to have some sort of delivery system to get either like deposit slips or retrieve things, whatever. And that's where the pneumatic tube system would come in. So uh, those would be the places where I've seen them in action. Uh, and of course I've heard about them in other places, but like, I want them to be here. Like, I think we need to have pneumatic tubes. Oh, oh, here it has to work. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, Honestly, once the construction in this building is done, we're going to have a real absence of irritating, loud, rattling noises. And I think that 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 is a niche that can be filled. Yeah, absolutely. By pneumatic tubes. I mean, our HVAC system does a pretty good job. (laughs) Also, I get so tired of sending emails, you know. Yeah. And I'm really trying to work on my handwriting. I think it could be a lot of fun. I I have a feeling we would uninstall it after a day, but (laughs) I'm totally in favor of saying, let's install a pneumatic tube system. I, maybe whoever sits next to the blower would have a different opinion than I do. I suspect so. But at any rate. So this has been a really interesting topic. I mean, just, the, again, this technology that is so, you know, so it's it's old, but it's also kind of, I don't know, there's something about it. I think it has that same kind of appeal as steampunk. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and, and I had no idea, no idea that these systems were so widespread. Yeah. Yeah. Beyond something like, you know, the, the limited use of the bank. Like inside of a single building. I had no idea that they spread throughout cities. Yeah. It's such a, such an interesting engineering way to get around the problem of how do you deliver mail in a dense urban environment in a timely manner? Um, relatively timely at any rate. So, I mean, we could still make that argument today. Yes. So, yeah, it was really cool. And Lauren, thank you so much for joining me on this pair of episodes. Oh, it was great yeah. having you here again. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, thanks for thanks for agreeing when I said, hey, let's do this thing. And, and it was so much fun. Uh, and also, you should totally watch the video. I mean, obviously, we've covered a lot more information than we covered in the video. Mm-hmm. But the videos are uh, amazing work. I mean, Lauren does a great job with the, the writing team. Aww. Thank and then our production crew puts it together and looks great. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, that that may or may not be out at the time that this podcast episode publishes. But uh, just, you know, what yeah, you should keep... do is subscribe. Yeah, yeah there you go. Subscribe That's the to ticket. Brain stuff, and then you'll be able to catch all the amazing videos. Uh, and you appear in, in lots of those, too. I do indeed. You can, you can see my appalling visage. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's only sometimes appalling, and only when we completely cover. <laughs> you in fake blood. Yeah, that did uh, happen this quote one unquote, time. Fake blood. Fake blood. Yeah. Hey, I helped make that blood. All right. I know it was fake. Okay. I promise. That's that's much better than the what the other way that could have gone. <laughs> like, I helped make that blood. I I was harvesting it from myself because I only trusted my own. Uh, no, but but seriously, those those videos are phenomenal. If you have not been checking them out, you have got to go see. The brain stuff videos, as well as the what the stuff videos that you work on, uh, these are—it's—it's it's a direction that how stuff works has been moving in for a while, and I think people are just starting to pick up on it, mm-hmm. and they are wildly informative and entertaining. So I recommend you go check those out if you have not seen them. And of course, you can hear us on our sister podcast, Forward Thinking, uh-huh. with Joe McCormick, where we talk about the future. 
uh, sometimes as if it has already happened. If you catch caught the uh, April Fool's Day episode from this year, if you haven't, you need to go and listen to it because we had so much fun on that one. We did. And so, uh, yeah, check that out. Also, remember, if you have any suggestions for future episodes of Tech Stuff, you can get in touch with me. Send me an email. The address is techstuff at howstuffworks.com or drop me a line on Facebook, Twitter or Tumblr. The handle at all three of those is techstuffhsw. And I'll talk to you again really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 